Welcome to Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Each week, I bring the world of hunting, fishing, and conservation to you. From the great hunting and fishing opportunities found in the Americas to the dream safaris located on the dark continent beyond. I'll introduce you to those who are already out in the field living every outdoor enthusiast's dream, as well as outfitters and gear manufacturers that can make those dreams your reality. Welcome to this week's episode of Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Really excited on this week's episode, I've got Todd Pregnitz on. Todd is the president of White Knuckle Productions, which videos and manufactures uh, DVDs on hunting in his local state of Iowa. Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you so very much, Jason. Glad to be here. For anybody that wants to go out to whiteknuckleproductions.com, they can see a variety of snippets of your hunts that you do and that are available on your DVDs. Is that correct? That's correct. And, and actually, Jason, we about two years ago, we stopped producing DVDs just because the market has changed so significantly. Now you can do everything online so easily, and it's actually so inexpensive that we're just able to produce is far more episodes and about a variety of different topics from shed season uh, all the way through summer scouting and tree stand trimming and, and management all the way into our fall. And I guess going back 10 years when I started White Knuckle, that was the, the vision that I had was I've always been a serious, crazy whitetail bow hunter, but I wasn't fortunate enough to be raised in a family of hunters. I kind of had to do it on my own and learn from my own mistakes and find my own piece of property, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to show all the work that we put in throughout the year in order to get on these big deer. And it kind of started, I, I'm originally from Michigan, hunted in Michigan for 16 years on public land mostly. Uh, and about 10 years ago, I moved to Iowa chasing the whitetail hunter's dream. I, I basically uprooted my, I sold my house, quit my job, moved to Iowa, started a business and uh, lived in a tiny little apartment uh, chasing the <laughs> chasing the bow hunter's dream basically. But uh, my first year here, I hunted, I believe 46 straight days and a- ended up uh, getting an arrow and, and killing the biggest buck of my dreams. It was absolutely monster. Everybody, you know, kind of had this assumption like, well, you're in Iowa, of course you're going to kill deer like that. But I felt like no one even realizes the time and energy it takes. Find these deer, get the, get permission to hunt the properties. And at the time, I was just knocking on doors, talking to farmers. And, you know, most generally, the people who let you hunt are the ones that let everybody hunt. So it's not necessarily... Uh, it's a challenge. So White Knuckle was kind of born from that. I wanted to tell the story of a hardworking do-it-yourself hunter and show, you know, the sacrifices and, and the time and energy it really does take to kill big mature deer. And I'm also not an outfitter hunter. I'm not opposed to outfitters or anything like that. I just, for me, I like to do uh, the full, you know, the full amount of work. And that's where my, I don't know, it, there's something quite special when, you, when you've been hunting an animal for many years and you finally get that opportunity, everything occasionally goes right. There's just not a more reward rewarding feeling in the world. You can't write a check for enough money that gives me that feeling. Oh, fantastic. Now, where did you uh, come from in Michigan? I was born in a town called Grand Haven, um, and it's actually quite a popular summer destination for tourism. It's on Lake Michigan, beautiful summer town. My wife, who's from Iowa, actually wonders why the heck I even moved from there. As a whitetail hunter, you know, coming from Michigan, it's tough hunting. I mean, we had a little cabin, uh, and I think my dad and his friend owned 40 acres, and we had a bunch of public land around it. I hunted from the time I was 12, and and basically was put in this in the two stand that was easiest to get to and that would be my stand for there we throw pickets or sugar beets out the front and that was scouting and that was basically how it was taught to hunt. And about the time I turned 
16 years old when I had a, a little bit of freedom to drive and to find new locations and hunt on my own. That's when I really started changing my way of hunting. And it all started from just basically frustration, sitting in a stand and watching the deer, you know, over there, going, well, why am I sitting here if they're over there consistently? And in the in along the way, I became far more into, like, engineering and design, so I started getting really into the gear. I've always been a gearhead. So I started using Lone Wolf Tree Stands and a couple of their products that really made a difference in my ability to just move for move toward the deer. I've never looked back. I've been running and gunning and being an aggressive hunter ever since those early days in Michigan. It can be applied anywhere. Uh, I, I remember the last year I hunted in Michigan, I passed over 40 bucks that year that I could have shot. They were all mostly year, one and a half year old, two and a half year old deer. But coming from Michigan, those are deer that every other hunter would kill. And I'd take a, to me, there was nothing to kill a, a spike or a four point, cut the antlers off, throw it in a bucket or on my workbench. That didn't do anything for me. Uh, so I would rather just shoot a doe and hope, you know, to try to find the most mature deer in the area. It took me a long time to realize that there's a reason why I wasn't seeing those mature deer in those areas. And it's just because they didn't survive there. They didn't live there. Uh, so that's when I just started my great quest for getting on better ground. Um, and it eventually took me out of state to Illinois. And within one week, I accessed a farm, saw the biggest buck of my life, killed him, and realized I'm actually a really good hunter. I'm just hunting in the wrong state. <laughs> No, I'm actually from the other side of the state from you. I grew up in an area north of Detroit, a little town called Lexington, right on Lake Huron. Oh, right on. It's the same thing. It's the adage, if it's brown, it's down, applies to the whole state of Michigan. I'm happy to see that there is some more focus on letting the deer get older, uh, but you're very correct. It's just a lot of young bucks. The older ones either never come out in the day or very rarely come out in the day or uh, are holed up on a golf course that you can't get to. <laughs> and that's, that's where I ended up hunting was, you know, and I, I still feel bad for this because my dad, as a big hunter, he, he wasn't a big hunter. He just enjoyed spending time with me and friends up at deer camp. And I just started realizing I would be better off hunting around town in Grand Haven, finding different nooks and crannies where, you know, small pieces of land actually held some decent bucks. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, I ended up hunting in Nunica, which um, you might know or not know. It's just a, a small farm town outside of that tourism area. That's what I came to the realization. All my buddies were heading up north on the weekends to party and have a good time. And I was more focused on where am I going to see the biggest deer? And it ended up being outside of these city limits and on weird farms. And to make a long story short, in all those years, 16 years, I ended up shooting the largest deer. One of the largest bucks I've ever seen in Michigan on that farm. And it was a 125-inch four-year-old. And it was an absolute slammer of a buck. And it still, to this day, is one of my most treasured trophies because of the rarity of that deer in Michigan, West Michigan. It's just, there's just not very many of them. And if they make it to that age, they are just a different animal animal. So I still take a lot of pride in that deer. Uh, I'm looking at him right now. And, but but that's the reality of it is, you know, it took a long time and a lot of years to realize that it wasn't the special call or the scent or camo or the bow. If you want to kill trophy caliber animals, you've got to be hunting where they live. A lot of guys, I think, just believe that they're out there like this ghost buck. But for the most part, if you're not getting trail camera pictures of them, you're not seeing them. They're not there. If they are there and they're just unkillable, then you might as well move on anyway because you either got to make it happen with those types of animals but if they're not there you can't do anything other than move on and hunt smart instead of hard so to speak exactly yeah there's a certain amount of time you put in and if that deer is a complete nocturnal deer and you can't figure out where they're they're spending their little bit of daytime moving around you're just not going to get them 
and most of it has to do with access, you know. I mean, these, those bucks survive in areas they haven't been hunted. Now, that's either because humans don't want to go in that area or because humans can't go in that area. Just like anybody else, boy, it always seems like the big ones are always at 20 yards over the property line, you know, or mm-hmm. I mean, the, the spot where you want to hunt always over the property line. And it's not a coincidence. It's because nobody's been hunting there. So what I've done here in Iowa, I've got a unique situation where I've got a, quite a bit of ground that I can hunt. I only I own 63 acres, but combined with the other properties around me and I've worked years and years to develop relationships with the different landowners where some farms I'm not allowed to hunt, but I can access. I can walk across, you know, on a farm lane or do this, that, or the other. So what I've done is built an access into my property and and some of the surrounding properties that I can hunt in ways that the other guys who are hunting in the same properties can't access. And I also use their hunting pressure to my benefit. And I think most guys are in the same boat where they're dealing with other hunting pressure uh, from neighbors or on public land. You've got to figure out and pattern the other hunters just like you do whitetails. And you can use that to your benefit. Trust me. I killed the biggest buck of my life and it was a big eight and I score wise I don't know, but it was an absolute monster eight year old deer that I've been tracking for five years literally. Tried to kill him for many, many years and just could not he just disappeared during the rut. Couldn't figure him out. All of a sudden, you know, one or two days you'd see him. Boom. All of a sudden he'd be on his feet during daylight and usually it was on a different property. And I avoided what ended up being his core area for years because I knew one of my neighbors had a tree stand within about 100 yards of it. And sure enough, that's where that buck had been living all these years on a stupid knob in thick timber. But once you, you know, once I figured it out, I got an arrow into him by going into his bedding area during daylight, crossing a creek with waders on, approaching this area in a way that no one has ever done before. And I had to wait for the right conditions, super, super windy day. I literally set my stand up, trimmed it out and shot him 14 minutes later at like 1.30 in the afternoon. And he was up broad daylight, right? in the middle of his bedding area, didn't have a care in the world because he was safe there. He'd spent years there. His mother probably had brought him through that area over the years. I mean, like that was just his bedroom. And you know why he was there? He could listen to the neighbors coming and going. He could listen to me coming and going on my property, which is adjacent. He had the greatest advantage. Nobody could get to him. But one day I chose to try something different and boom, I caught him with his pants on and up killing him. Now, if I kind of killed him that day, you know, would I have ever gotten another shot at him? I don't know, but that's my personality. I'd rather try try, be aggressive, and go into those core areas and take the chance of boogering them out or spooking them because if you don't in a lot of cases, they will simply not leave that area. So it's like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, but I'd much rather take my chances and get aggressive. And I'll tell you, I have killed a lot of big bucks over the years, big mature deer in areas where everybody else is hunting these same deer and they just, they can never get them. And it's generally because they're hunting the same stands they've always hunted. They're walking in the same way they've always walked in and they're doing it the easy way. And that's not how you consistently kill mature dominant deer on pressure plant. You simply have to hunt unlike anybody else in your area. So it's really, you're putting in a lot of time and a lot of effort to figure out unique ways to get into an area. The average hunter, like you said, is just going going out and taking the, the path of least resistance, throwing a stand up and hoping something walks in front of them. Well, and you know, I'm a product of the same market and industry and marketing that everybody else has been hearing and listening to. And I mean, Jason, how many stories over the years have you read or heard about or talked about about hunting funnels or pinch points over the years? I mean, like I've heard it thousands of times probably. W- what I started realizing on my property here was in those obvious hunting spots where everybody has always had a tree stand, where it's the obvious place where 
all these ridges come down and all the main trails connect and all that, those are the spots every human being will immediately go to because, well, it's a concentration of sign, it's a concentration of deer, this is where you want to hunt. Over the years of hunting professionally for 10 years, hunting every day of the season pretty much, I've just come to the conclusion that those are the spots that you can never kill, or at least I can't ever put myself in position of killing mature deer in those obvious spots. And I believe it's mostly due to just the education these deer have had over the years of guys hunting those spots over and over and over during the rut, during the preseason, you know, just over hunting and, and basically educating the animals in those spots. So my rule of thumb now is anytime I find one of those obvious spots, especially if there's other tree stands around or you can tell guys have been hunting around there, I always plan on hunting downwind of that. Now, whether it's 50, 100 yards, whatever, that's how a mature buck is going to go through those areas. Areas. They're always going to go downwind. Unless a hot doe drags them through, they're going to always go downwind. They always seem to find that unique route around those high traffic areas. And I just do not see mature bucks walking down those big trails consistently. You can, I mean, during the rut, there's those days. And I, I truly believe at least for most of my mature big bucks, when they get five, six, seven years old, they are not vulnerable other than two or three days a year, maybe. And that's when late rut hits, they start losing their, their does in their area to breed. They've already bred them. And then they start getting frustrated because they can't find any, and they're forced to go seek. Boy, I tell you, those big ones, they just don't move that much. They spend so much of their time on their bellies and just in a small area. Um, and here in Iowa, there's so much food around everywhere. There's so much ag. There's so much browse. They don't have to travel very far to get up and have a snack. It is absolutely awesome to follow these animals year after year after year. And I still, I've been hunting now, I think for close to 25 years. Every year, man, I look back and I'm like, holy cow, like I got duped in this way. And I learned so much. I just keep learning and learning. I think that's what it takes to become an awesome bow hunter or an awesome hunter in general is you've got to have that thirst for knowledge. You've got to find a way to not imitate and to create your own ways of, of doing things for your area and just be adapt, you know, learn to adapt to the situations. And I think that's when uh, I became a better hunter was when I realized that there's no such thing as having all your stands trimmed before the season and expecting everything to go as planned. I, I think in general, if I have 30 tree stands hung before the year, and that's usually what I have about 30 hanging, I mean, those are my jump points, I call them. Like, I'll hunt in a stand and depending on what I see it gives me an opportunity to then make a move to get in on an individual animal that I'm hunting Um, and that's you know the other side of it too Jason is I'm hunting individual bucks so my tactics will tend to be a little bit different than a guy who's just looking for any you know any rack animal or, or whatever everybody's got different goals but for me, I just, there's something about hunting one individual animal and um, hunting them down and, and trying to kill them in it is just the greatest challenge in the world. It's fantastic. That's, yeah, it's a whole different ballgame when you're going after one particular animal. And that is something that is done quite a bit here where I live now in, in Texas, but that's because of so much private land. Uh, if the land sure. is high fenced, it's very easy for the person to know there's deer there. That The deer yep. might not come in, but they know they're there, depending on the size of the property. Yep. Yep. Whereas with you, you're hoping that deer stays in your particular area. Yeah, I'll tell you, the most guys would think I'm crazy. I almost, almost prefer to have a little bit of hunting pressure on some of my neighboring properties. And I'll tell you why. Like I said before, these deer don't have to move very far. So if they find a place to live around here, there's a ton of, there's, we got everything everywhere. Tons of habitat. The one thing I can do is, is, is control the does with my food plots, but that doesn't mean the bucks are going to live right here on my property. What I really become a master of is letting other people do my work for me. I know this year, as an example, I was hunting a ghost, a giant, 190-inch type deer, and um, I had pictures of him. I only had one 
one set of pictures from the summer, but I knew that that animal was alive and around. And I, and I knew he lived in a different area. I, I had a pretty good idea. It was on one of my other neighbors. And it's a property I can't access. No way I can get permission. It's just, it is what it is. And I knew uh, through a different landowner that they had gotten pictures of this guy. I had figured. And I knew that the only chance I would have of killing him is if they put the pressure on early and overhunted him before it got good because they were concerned that I was going to kill him. So sure enough, November 8th, all of a sudden he's completely moved a mile and he was in on my property and I hunted him for the last two weeks of the rut. But sometimes you have to let other people make mistakes in order to move these bucks into areas that you can actually hunt them. Uh, and, and some guys don't have that patience and I think it takes a lot of years of experience. You know, that's where the number one thing I would say for where I become a better hunter over the years is, you know, we all as bow hunters were born from this the more you hunt, the par- more hardcore you are as a deer hunter. And, you know, knowing what I know now, especially hunting these individual animals, sometimes the best thing you can do is not hunt. Uh, if the conditions are not right, like this past fall, we had an incredibly warm fall in the Midwest during the rut. I mean, it was up in the 70s on days. And I, I would joke and take pictures on Facebook where I'm out shooting my bow at prime time during the rut because it's 75 degrees and I'd rather drink a beer, shoot my bow, make sure everything's in tune and just wait for the weather to change enough where it made sense to then go go in after that animal uh, instead of burning up my ground and and, and moving before it was time. So, you know, those are things that only experience will give you. Um, Before then, I was hunting every single day from October 1st until the end of January or whatever, and I was hunting every morning and every evening. And after about five years of doing that, you just start to realize, man, I don't see anything in the morning until about late October. So why am I wasting myself, burning myself out, uh, we had cam- I had a camera guy that I had to pay for all this, and that- now I'm I'm way more on the opposite side of the spectrum. Where particularly if you're hunting one animal and you know where he's at, be patient, wait, and when the time is to strike, that's when you move in. Um, but yeah, that's a it's a it's a double edged sword. I'll tell you, there's a you know a lot of people who have that mentality that if I don't get out there and kill him, somebody else is going to. But I've become very very patient, knowing that these bucks survive to that age, and these guys around me are most likely not going to kill them because they haven't already. And if they made it that long they're living in a spot that that um, for some reason nobody else can get to them so then i try to put that piece of the puzzle together of how can i do something to get that one opportunity that one moment of vulnerability in these deer life and a lot of times it doesn't happen this is the big one i was hunting this late season i never was able to get a crack at them but on halloween i, I was able to get a shot at a seven-year-old deer hit him perfectly so filmed it coming right out of his bed and um you know leading to that hunt which was successful i probably had two dozen fail earlier in the season where I would go in set up on a buck bed for, for a particular animal and get blown at, busted, whatever. I mean, it goes wrong all the time and occasionally everything goes right and you get cracked one, but um, that's hunting. <laughs> right. Now, when you went to uh, Iowa, when you left Michigan and moved to Iowa, was White Knuckle Productions already born? Was the idea to go out there to film hunts or just to hunt? Um, it was actually, I was specifically moving to Iowa to hunt professionally. Um, I hadn't set up. I, I shouldn't say that. That's not actually the case. I was working uh, as an engineer in some different companies in the hunting industry. So basically, I was doing product design, engineering, and then sourcing products, some products from overseas and so on in the U.S. And that was my niche. That's basically how I made a living. So as a serious hunter, I'd watched um, different guys who lived in states and where I had to travel on the weekends, you know, and it just became such a burden on families that, you know, I wanted to have a family someday. So I knew I needed to move where I hunted. Otherwise, my personality 
it would never work. There's no way I would be able to settle down because once I set my mind to something, I cannot pull off. I'm, I'm completely nuts for this stuff. Once I got to Iowa, had my first season, I started doing some outdoor writing and people really liked it. And I had a voice that kind of um, seemed to be wanted to be heard and just a unique story. And I just basically one day came to the conclusion, boy, it'd be great to tell that story in video. Um, I met my, through a family friend in Michigan, a guy named Kyle Reindeers, who uh, ended up becoming my principal cameraman. Now he's part owner of White Knuckle. Um, but he went to major motion picture school to work in the film industry out in Hollywood. And he was a farm kid, pushing kid from Michigan. And um, the Hollywood scene wasn't his style, so he moved back home. I met him around the same time, and when he produced our first DVD for us, he had literally never seen a hunting video before. And that was the freshness and uniqueness I wanted to bring into the industry, make it more relatable for guys like myself who are more do-it-yourselfers and you know who didn't have a big ranch to hunt at or didn't have outfitters to go hunt at um, or maybe didn't even have family that was hunting. I just wanted to tell the truth about the hunting and I wanted to share it in a way that was non-commercial, in a way that didn't just that wasn't about just selling products and my philosophy has always been we use products we use because they get the job done and help us get the job done and it's easy for me to talk about, you know, lone wolf tree stands or wicked tree gear, um, these different products that we use every day in the field. It's like the tools of the trade. Some things work, some things don't. We don't use the ones that don't. So I have no problem promoting the products we use because they are the best. Well, and with that, how have you found uh, others in the outdoor industry? Because the, the television community is a, a small community. How have you found others as far as acceptance goes for what you're doing? It's... <laughs> It's, um, it's, it's people dig it. Like the, the, there's, I don't know. I think there's two different people in the hunting industry. There's the type who are motivated by ego, who really just want to be celebrities and want to be known. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. We all have a different place on this planet and everybody's got their own goals and vision. Um, for me personally, it was always about the deer and sharing the stories and just trying to be, trying to kill, um, the most dominant, biggest bucks around, um, my way and not having, you know, the big backing, the big backing and all that. So we've kind of always been underdogs and some people love that about us and other people are jealous because I kill bigger deer than they do. Well, that can certainly cover a number of industries. Uh, now you hit, you're an archery hunter only, correct? That's correct. Yep. I only bow hunt. Did you just attend the local or not the local, but did you just attend the national ATA show? Yes. Yep. We're just there. Um, and I think it was like my, I think 18th or 19th ATA show in a row. Oh, wow. So this is really your time to network with your sponsors, potential sponsors, and just the bow community in general. I, I'm actually kind of stuck in a booth most of the time um, because I'm also the president of Wicked Tree Gear, uh, and that's a different company that I started and um, basically sold last year to Takamani Wildlife Systems. But essentially, I'm there working, selling saws, pole saws, uh, just like anybody else. And I have different uh, a general manager and different employees for White Knuckle that help me with uh, with working with the sponsors because really the ATA show we're there to sell product. You know, that's that's what we're there for. It's turned into more of a marketing and advertising show compared to years ago. It used to be the show where you'd write all your orders. Um, I was there for many years with Lone Wolf Tree Stands back in the day, and we used to sell piles and piles of tree stands. Uh, but now, just with buying groups and the way the industry is, it's a little different. So it turned into more of a marketing and advertising uh, show where, you know, all the media, all the TV shows uh, all come out, do their thing. And from when I first started going, the industry look and feels and is so much different. It's crazy. Uh, for the better or for the worse? I don't know. Um, a little bit of both, maybe. I with, I mean, before I even get going, the industry's been down about 30 to 40 percent, two years running now. So whatever is going on, it's not working. We're obviously not pushing product out the door, so to speak, uh, nationwide. Now, there's a lot of different things that are going on. There's the way retail 
oil is across the board. It's down uh, mostly due to Amazon. This company has changed how companies do business and how people sell products now. Uh, and it's not for the better, in my opinion. I think it's creating a nightmare for most retailers, especially the smaller shops and, you know, the archer shops. But, hey, I have a wife who hunts. She's not a serious hunter, um, but she likes to shotgun hunt. So I, I love to film for her at the time of year where I, I'm not hunting, so it works great for us. I love that more women are coming into the industry. Um, I love that more kids are coming into the industry. But I think some of the messages that are getting pushed across by some of these companies um, with some of the spokespeople that they have, uh, it doesn't reach the target market, the guys who are actually spending the money. Um, so, for example, you get these beautiful women who look like they should be models out selling archery products. You know, if, if they're hardcore hunters and that's what they do, I love it. But that's not always the case. And I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's creating a bit of a gap in the marketplace where it's turning into a cool kids club. And, you know, that isn't a thing to me. Uh, hunting is about the animals, not about the people hunting them. Oh, very well said. With with looking at the ATA show, I, I saw an interesting article about the cost of uh, getting into bow hunting and the new bows. I, I know the technology has made the new bows just amazingly powerful weapons, but there's a price tag that's come along with that. You see many, many of these new bows, what, a thousand, twelve hundred bucks? Yeah. That yeah, makes yep. it very, or not very, potentially cost prohibitive for somebody to try archery if they don't look to buying a used bow maybe to start off with. Sure, sure, sure. Well, and, you know, you hit the nail on the head. The technology now is, you know, the mid-range bows, the four or $500 bows of today that most guys kind of, I mean, to be honest with you, most guys kind of look down on because it's cheap, right? Compared to 20 years ago, man, all these bows out now are unbelievably accurate. They're incredibly fast. The, the amount of gear available today, if anything, I think is more confusing for new archers because I've been in this business for 25 years and I'm a, I design products for living and I get confused by what the heck should I pick, you know, for certain accessories, things like that. I think I think there's almost too many choices out there for most consumers. Um, with being said, part of what we're trying to do, um, both as well as being, uh, starting a podcast as well, is I want to have a, excuse my French, BS approach to all of this different equipment. And you know what? A guy doesn't need to go out and buy a thousand dollar boat in order to go kill a deer. If anything, I think people get too caught up in the product stuff um, because that does not buy success. Still the guy behind the boat. I would rather have somebody shooting a jack bow who has the time and energy and patience to shoot every single day and not expect because they buy the highest end bow that they have to shoot less. You've got to put the work in if you expect to get any result and it really doesn't matter what you have in your hand. Yeah, that's a that's a great way. I, when you look at these higher end, obviously that's where the companies make the bulk of their money so that's what they're going to push. Uh, but Sure, sure, sure. As you said, now I'm not a vertical bow shooter. I Due to some uh, handicap issues, I can't draw one. Okay. But yep. when you look at a vertical bow, as you said, in the four or $500 range, that is, you could easily set to 50, 55, 60 pounds of draw on the top end. Yeah, yep. It's going to be more than enough to kill a whitetail. Oh, I, you know, I, I think one of the guys, I, Andre DeQuisto was the original owner of Lone Wolf, and he's one of the best whitetail hunters in the country. Um, I was fortunate to be able to spend a few years hunting with him. And when you hunt with guys who've been there and done it for all those years and have killed dozens and dozens of huge, 
huge world last year. Their perspective is quite unique, especially when they're not in the industry really, per se, from the marketing media side. It pretty much flipped my world upside down, and I've never changed my philosophy from then is, you know, this is a guy who was telling all these huge deer, he was shooting 55 pounds, I think. You never heard him talk about speed. You never heard him talk about the, the latest calls or scents. You never heard him talk about any of the gear. All he talked about was the property to kill these deer. And so you start to realize, like, you know, he didn't use any scent elimination stuff. All, all these different things that you've been taught and preached to over the years that you start to believe through marketing and advertising campaigns. And believe me, these companies spend millions of dollars to teach you this. You start to realize it's crap. The real secret is... <laughs> being in the right spot at the right time. And all the equipment stuff, we use, you know, some of the finest equipment out there, some of it's most expensive. Um, and it helps us get the job done. But at the end of the day, man, you know, you've got to be in the right spots. I think people, I think a lot of bow hunters just focus on the wrong things. Um, and it's not their fault, the industry that's done it. And we're, I'm going to give you a perfect example of this. We're all used to shooting at 3D targets, these deer targets. And where is the 12 ring on every 3D target? About two inches back from the shoulder leg bone. That's about the, the most, it's about the worst thing we could ever teach an archer, a bowler, is to be aiming right next to the shoulder. But yet, all these years, we've been trained to do it. And I still do the same thing. I follow the leg up, boom. That's where I end up shooting my buck this year. When, if you look at the anatomy of a whitetail, the 12 ring should technically, for archery hunting, should be located three to four inches back from the shoulder. But that's not where the heart is. It's like, a, it's just what we've been trained to do. So we're all in products of our environment. You just have to somehow, some way, shape, or form. In my opinion, you, nowadays with the technology, you can learn a lot of stuff online all that. But I tell you, there's no real substitution for hunting with guys or girls who know more than you do and spending time with them and learning from them. Uh, you'll skip a lot of podcasts and a lot of web shows if you get if you have that opportunity to hunt with people who have been there and have the experience. You cannot substitute anything for experience and and that's why i'm so fortunate man just to be to have been able to hunt you know nearly full time for 10 years i've I've been able to spend more time in the field than most guys will in their lifetime Uh, and i'm still i'm only 39 so i'm i really feel blessed as much as i feel like a good hunter because that's what it takes it takes experience and if you're not around that experience get around the experience because that's what's going to teach you more than any of these other anything will period yeah so it's with that said, as a person, as a, a person in the outdoor industry, you have a number of sponsors that you work for and with. How do you keep all of them happy? How did you, uh, let's take a step back. How did you actually approach these sponsors with the number of years you've been in the business to actually, if somebody was wanting to, to join in or do similar to what you're doing, sure, how sure. do you approach a sponsor? What, what are you looking for as an owner of a company yourself? Well, um, there's real no, really no secret other than putting yourself out there. Uh, I think, you know, I can remember back when I was first thinking about and started talking with a few guys about doing this DVD company, I felt very intimidated, especially around guys who've been doing it before. And they kind of always make it seem like, oh, you know, it's so hard to do it. And then now, 10 years later, I'm like, you just got to do it. But my secret was I started working with companies on the development end and the engineering end and, and design stuff. But I tell you, volunteering a company at an ABA show or some of these trade shows goes a long way. Um, I had developed these relationships with these different companies that turned into my sponsor, but I didn't ask anything of them. I was promoting their products, using their products, selling their products for them before I ever asked for anything. And I think that's 90% of it is you can't put the carriage before the horse. You have to earn your keep. Show these companies or a company that you're, number one, a customer. I can't tell you how many guys... How many TV shows, special hunters, whatever you want to call it, or want to be professional hunters, have approached me to try to get a sponsorship from Wicked Tree Gear, and they've never used our product before? Like, are you kidding me? Like, you're unwilling to invest $40 in a saw, but you want me to invest in you. That doesn't work. You have to become knowledgeable.
untouchable and you have to be a cheerleader of a product and a company before you attempt, in my opinion, to get a sponsorship with them. You happen to have some sort of a contact and it is who you know. Unfortunately, I didn't have anybody in the industry that I knew. I had to earn and build those relationships, but I did it through a lot of traveling, a lot of trade shows, a lot of helping, and I was getting paid nothing going out and doing all this, but I did it because I absolutely loved the sport. I loved being there, talking to these serious hunters, uh, and that's it. You know, you, I think you're, I think most guys, if you're going to make it in this industry, you've got to have a passion that burns so deep. It has nothing to do with money. Uh, the money side of this is not what you're going to do for, and that's why you see a lot of TV shows come and go in two to three years, because usually they'll blow their wives or the <laughs> family members, so that's it. you got to start making money. You just can't turn profitability on a typical TV show or a web show for probably three to five years, give or take. So if you're not passionate about it and doing it just because you you can't do anything else, I would pick something else to do as a full-time job and just on the side for a hobby because it is extremely tough to make a living in an industry where everybody and their brother is willing to do that same job for free as a pro, pro staff guy or whatever, pro staff girl. Um, and that's what you're up against. It's it's not a typical industry where it's just business. This is also a passion and a hobby. So it really throws a lot of other competition into the mix that you normally wouldn't have in a different business or a different industry uh, just because of that hobbyist nature, you know, side. So it, it makes it tough, but at the same time, you know, when you go to these ATA shows and different things, it is a brotherhood and it's a family, sisterhood, whatever you call it. And dude, it's awesome. I mean, when you're there, it's awesome, but it's so much work. And over the years, you go to, you know, after 19, 18, 19 of these shows, you see the same thing over and over and over and it kind of, you know, it becomes repetitive. And I'll tell you, the other thing is, once you add money into the mix when you're hunting, it changes hunting. Uh, you can't, you, I can't say it any other way, but when you are relying on those kills or those stories to collect a paycheck, it does change the pressure and stress of the situation. Um, and for the probably five or six years producing DVDs and all that, it was incredibly, incredibly stressful because not are you relying on yourself to get the job done, but you're relying on your team members and friends to do it. And you can't control that. And as we all know, can't control these animals. They're wild animals. It's not like you can just work harder and produce the same results. It's, dude, there's a little bit of luck in it. Some see bad seasons. Sometimes bucks die. Sometimes they get shot. So I think it's more than what people know. A lot of guys bite more than they can chew. But the other part is, I think I've seen more often than not now, because the younger generation is more technically proficient, those are the guys who are out there well, doing the shows, doing the podcast, whatever. Um, they might not have the experience to back it. And I personally can't imagine going into the field with a camera and trying to film big mature deer if I had never killed them or had not had experience in doing it first. And I think that's where I was fortunate, where I, I put 15, 16, 17 years of hunting in before I picked up a camera and tried to film anything. Um, if you're trying to combat buck fever and challenging yourself with these huge mature deer and doing camera work on top of it for the first time, you're really setting yourself up for a tough, tough job. Not saying it can't be done, but I think in a lot of cases, guys need to go out, get a little bit more experience, kill a few deer, hang some on the wall, get to that confidence level where adding the camera becomes fun and not so much of a challenge. And and now for me, all these years later, I enjoy self-filming my hunts as much as anything because it is the greatest challenge challenge that I can possibly face trying to self-film mature deer, especially up a tree. And, but, and so for me, it just is another way to raise the bar on my hunting. You know, I mean, you can, everybody likes 
something different from not or inches. I'm not motivated by killing a boot and crockett or, or scoring any of these deer. I've actually never scored any of my whitetails. Don't care. And I've killed some bandies. But for me, it's not about that. To me, I want to kill the most dominant, biggest bodied stud buck in that area and the antlers are secondary. And that's my personal goal, personal challenge. And, and I think that every hunter out there needs to get to that point in their career where they're hunting for themselves and not because of their bees or, or trying to kill a buck because they want to be able to brag to the buck. You know, it's about self-fulfillment. Like, as soon as you kind of get a point in maturity, you know, comes into play a lot too. If you get to that point where you can, you're kind of satisfied with your own goals, hunting becomes so much more enjoyable when you're not out there hunting for the wrong reasons, I guess. But we all <laughs> we all are young and dumb at certain points of our life and careers, so you got to go through some of those stages and make mistakes and, and do all that. But I think those are the valuable lessons that, that turn uh, normal hunters into extraordinary hunters over a period of time. Uh, it's just going through and making those mistakes, learning from them, adapting, changing, and, and eventually starting to see some success come from it. Well, and one thing you mentioned is that you've actually started your own podcast. Where can you find that? What What's the name of it? Uh, it is the White Knuckle Podcast. You can find it on our Facebook page if you just search White Knuckle Productions. Uh, we're just starting it now. We We've launched a couple initial episodes, and we are going to be producing a new show every other week, give or take. And the goal behind this is to get more into the details, too. We're looking for in a 10-minute or 15-minute web show. With these DVDs, and you're doing, especially the DVDs, we did them for nine years, I think. You know, you're putting together a two-hour DVD, and you've got all this footage and story you want to tell, and you just only have so much time. So for me, I'm like real anal and analytical, so I want to get in all the details behind hunts and all that. And the best format we found for it is podcast. And I I've just started doing more of them in the last six months, and I absolutely love it uh, because it gives gives me an opportunity to talk about these different experiences that I've had and also talk with guys like yourself, Jason, who I always learn something from. Like, no matter who it is, no matter who I talk to, something always comes up in these conversations. You just, if you immerse yourself in it, you're bound to learn something. And so, for me, I just want to educate people and hopefully help people make a difference in their hunting seasons uh, because that's a quite quite an accomplishment and quite a pr- uh, feeling of pride for me when I talk to a customer or a Facebook friend or whatever who has been listening or watching our shows and they, they tell me about the bucks they used our tactics on and how it helped them kill their deer that year or whatever. Um, and I just, that is just, again, you can't put a price on it. That to me is like what I do it for is to help other guys accomplish the same goals that I've been able to accomplish, but do it in a way that's not commercial and do it in a way that's relatable for anybody out there. Whether you're a plumber, you work you work on a construction crew, you work at a gas station, a video store, or you're a professional. You know, I, I look at everybody the same way. Everybody's got the same capabilities of becoming successful. It's not just money motivated. Uh, some of the best white hunters I know are dirt poor. You never hear them. They don't care about that. They're just killers. So I, I just want to kind of, if anything, be that blue collar guy within the industry who, who isn't afraid to work and, and isn't afraid to tell the truth about some of this stuff and not have everything so money motivated. That's where I think of this industry, it seems like there's just a lot of that in the media side that it's kind of a like a, a white collar upper class. You got to have money to do this stuff. And I, I say, no way, man. Anybody can do it. You just got to be willing to work a little bit harder. Exactly. There are plenty of places that a person can go spend an inordinate amount of money and take a beautiful, beautiful whitetail. They're from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast. Those hunting ranches are, are available. Uh, where you really see it interesting, or at least to me, get interesting, is when you see somebody like yourself that's learning how to pattern the deer. The white-tailed deer, I don't know of too many other animals that I would put up there as being more intelligent than the white-tailed deer. A mature buck knows what's going on. And so when you go to a Iowa, in Illinois, in Ohio, a Michigan, 
Michigan. There are big deer there in all those states. Some states have much, much bigger deer than others, but you get in there and it's really about putting in the time and the effort if you're hunting a small 10 acre, five acre, 50 acre piece where there's plenty of other things going on around it. you have to learn how to get those deer and you know just listen to you i can see tactics that well you may be using them in iowa they're applicable to white-tailed deer anywhere across the united states oh absolutely 100 percent. i would say that's so consistent you said there are extremely intelligent mature whitetail and it's crazy because they can't reason right so this is just instinctual stuff that's driven and it's in their dna from start to finish you know what the dumb ones die young and and that is the truth from any state you any state you look at the two-year-olds one-year-olds two-year-olds three-year-olds that are the most hyperactive horny deer that have no self-control that are out running around they're gonna get shot and killed so it's just evolution man we're forcing it but the deer that survive are the ones that are a little more reclusive have the personalities or live in the happen to live in those spots that just don't get hunted and so if they've survived to make it five or six or seven years old it shows you what their pattern is because it's in a safe zone or they just don't move at all and, and from my experience hunting all these different individual animals each one's a little bit different a lot of it is dependent on the amount of dominance is built in their blood uh, for example the the 100 inch deer that i was hunting this year i don't believe he's a dominant deer at all he's got real long brow tines and he's got two big kickers off of one of his tines uh, off his g2 that are not that i expected to be broken off i'll just put it that way he's still carrying all of it i, I call this deer dl after down low because that the personality this thing has had his entire <laughs> life and i oftentimes believe i think a lot of your bigger more world-class type animals the ones we're all going for right a lot of times they they tend to be submissive and that's how they get so big because if they weren't that personality they would have been fighting and getting their butts kicked and kicking butts for all these years which makes them less healthy going into the winters which mean they can't grow as big of a rack in the spring so there's a correlation between huge racks and dominance and sometimes i really believe not all the time but sometimes i believe that's half of the reason why they make it to that age is because they're less likely to come into a call they're less likely to go running into a fight and get involved and they're less likely to do- to defend their breeding areas they'll just move away um, and that makes them really tough to kill because you've got less and less options or, or methods or means of manipulating them into killing them um, and so in that case you have to literally go right to where they live and in this case this year I died oh my lord I was so close to this year so many times from early morning before dark in his bedding areas and blowing them out and everything else that's what keeps me going every day man uh, well when you know they're out there it's got to be a rush to get up and, and go out there and keep going at them day after day it gets frustrating too though because you're you play cat and mouse with these bucks and obviously the time you want to kill them is the first time in so they haven't had a chance to get to know what's going on and they haven't busted you or maneuvered around you but it becomes challenging when especially oh rut time when you know a a hot doe can change everything you know you're sometimes sitting out there wondering if you're going crazy i'd gotten to the point with this buck that i was hunting where i was self-filming and i'd seen him three or four times and just it was such it was a flash here a flash there and at 20 yards one day just he just one flash and he was gone and and I became, I, I like literally was going out of my mind. I thought I was hallucinating the whole experience. Like, does this deer even still live around here? Am I imagining? I mean, you just get to the point where you, you just question yourself over and over so hard, just like everybody else does. And just because you've killed some of these big deer over the years doesn't make it any easier. Uh, I mean, each one's so crazy, so hard that when it does finally happen, it's just mind blowing to me still. Um, I don't plan on ever killing one of these deer. It, it is just such a miracle to have all those things come together, at least here around on my property. I kind of have gotten myself used to 
planning for failure and just every hunt that I am not successful, I consider it to be another brick in the wall. Uh, and eventually I'm going to have a tall enough wall where I'm going to capture that sucker and I'm going to get a crack at him. Now, I thankfully, I've been fortunate enough to kill enough animals where it allows me to take some of the pressure off for myself. And also through experience to just know that, you know, some days you're just not going to see deer and it's nothing you're doing. You're not in the wrong spot. You're just not going to see anything that day. Biology, it's the weather, whatever the heck. I think the sooner you start to realize some of that stuff, the more enjoyable hunting is because you can really beat yourself up over some of these big bucks. And I have a good friend of mine uh, that I hunt with down here and he he's on some giants every year and we kind of have a very similar uh, hunting style. So we're, we're the, the buddies that text back and forth throughout the season and everything. And it really is very deceiving when you watch it on television and everything's edited down into a five minute hunt for some of these bucks, but you don't realize that there's always somebody putting that time in, whether it's a guide, an outfitter, or that hunter on these properties. Those big deer just don't walk in front of a tree stand and die. Everything's been set up. Every Somebody's put in the work no matter what. And, and I guess we just choose to talk about that aspect a little bit more and to show a little bit more of that aspect because I think that's what I really enjoy. It, it truly has become more about the journey, not the destination. Well, that's fantastic. And that's really what I think many in the industry have, have forgotten. And I think that's a, a great message to present, not only for yourself, but one that more in the industry should take to heart. Yeah, you know, that's the hard part about the business because, you you know, in business you have to compete. You know, there's some elements in there that become challenging and you got to manage your ego. We all have egos. And I'll tell you, for t- after 10 years of being in this industry, fighting for every paycheck, um, you know, you build up a barrier and sometimes people don't like you for it. Um, and that is business. But you have to balance that with, hey man, I got into this because of my passion and love for hunting and I didn't get into it because I'm trying to make a bunch of money. So it's a balancing act, man. And I'm not, I'm... I am not judging anyone or anything, any way that anybody hunts. I just do my thing and um, I'm opinionated about it and and that's just who I am. But the business side of it is challenging and I'll tell you, it's ruined a ton of friendships for myself and every other guy I know in the hunting industry and never starts out that way. But when you're the guy who has to write the checks every week and every month, it changes things. And so that's where I would kind of caution some of these people who, you know, want to get into the hunting industry uh, because they think you could just get to hunt, you know, full time. And it's like, oh my Lord, you have no idea. The guys who are doing it full-time, really successful, uh, guys like Lee Lukoski. I mean, I'm, I'm friends with Lee. He's the reason I moved right down in this particular area. We were friends years and years ago. This, you know, these guys work. Lee's the hardest working man I've ever met. I mean, the guy doesn't sleep hardly. <laughs> He's freaking crazy. Um, and I'm crazy compared to most, but it takes a special person. And I would just, you know, you got to follow your gut on everything. Don't worry about what other people are doing. Don't try to do what other people are doing. You gotta, if you're going to be successful in this industry, you got to be real. you got to be yourself. Uh, because if you aren't acting in that way, it's a very transparent on camera and on footage and you're just simply not going to get the connection with your audience and you know at the end of the day the customer allows us to do this so we really have to focus on what the customer wants and sometimes it's hard to do that when it's different than what you want personally i think that's a great uh takeaway for anybody that's even remotely interested in being in the outdoor industry uh and and todd i really appreciate your time now there's white knuckle productions.com as your main website uh can people reach you through there Yes, absolutely. If you go um, like through the contact us page or the easiest way is really on our Facebook page. And we encourage anybody and everybody to join and to like our page, share your shed hunting pictures or deer pictures um, and any questions that you might have. I absolutely love directly responding to people on specific questions and also throw up some different ideas for for future podcasts and different topics that you want uh, covered because we're all about our customer. We want to provide entertainment and information for what you guys want, what you girls want, and we'll do it in a way that's going to be straightforward. The other aspect 
you can go to our uh, we have a YouTube uh, YouTube channel as well, so you can check out anything from White Knuckle Productions there as well. And if you can't find me through there, Wicked Tree Gear is another way, which I'm the president still of Wicked Tree Gear, helping design develop the next generation of products and the best high quality cutting instruments on earth, best saws and pole saws, basically designing the equipment that we use in the field, you know, every day to get the job done. Well, fantastic! And for all the listeners, I'm going to have links to everything Todd mentioned about ways to get in touch with him in the show notes. So just reference over the show notes and you'll be easily able to contact uh, Todd through any number of those channels. Todd, I thank you for your time and it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much, Jason. I enjoyed it very much and I look forward to some future podcasts with you, buddy. Yeah, and I can't wait to hear more from what you and and your partner Jason are doing. Well, thank you. We appreciate the support. And again, everybody who's out there, go out there, get your feet wet, get your feet dirty, your pants dirty, go through the briars this spring and uh, do some scouting. This is the best way out there learning what you're going to do from the season and it's never too early to get out there and planning. Great. Well, Todd, you have a wonderful day. You too, my friend. Thanks. Come early spring, it's getting green. Fisher on the bed. Hear those turkeys gobble. Ringing in my head. The winter rise bass boat, here comes another year. Yeah, we command the outdoors round here. Oh, we command the outdoors. Yeah, we. Command the outdoors. Come summertime, we're feeling fine, fishing on the lake, flipping jigs in Carolina rigs. From early morning till real late, bonfires on the creek bank, kick back a couple beers. Yeah, we command the outdoors around here. Yeah, we command the outdoors. Yeah, we command the outdoors. Next year's does until you know winter's on the way. Brushing blinds and deer stands. Fever starts to creep. Fill our freezers full of ducks, lots of tender deer. Yeah, we command the outdoors around here. Yeah, we command the outdoors. Yeah, we. So grab your guns, shells, boys. Put on your camouflage. Cause we command the outdoors around here.